Before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Ari Parker who is America's leading Medicare expert. He's authored the best-selling book, It's Not That Complicated, essentially educating older Americans on how to build their wealth and their health in the best possible way. So Ari, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show. So what is the first thing that springs to mind when we think health and wealth in the future? It seems like for it to be in the best possible way when we retire or when we hit that older generation it involves a lot of planning and forethought when you're younger absolutely because healthcare is a large portion of someone's budget especially in the united states in fact for the average retiree in the u.s it's 41 percent of their income so 41 percent of their social security check typically goes towards healthcare expenses. As you mentioned, it's a planning exercise. In order to retire, you need to have enough money set aside in order to pay for your healthcare needs. It sounds like it's not something you would think about until it becomes important. I can't tell you how many people that have tried to get healthier, tried to get fitter, but until something happens to them, whether it be a health scare, whether they get this negative test on something that they thought would go well and didn't. It's normally a bit of a an experience or a test that doesn't go their way that makes them think, oh, maybe I should look after myself better. A- absolutely. And in, in the U.S., I would really, there there's a, a patchwork of different systems, of different insurance plans for people to choose. The one for older aged Americans is called Medicare. Medicare is the government program for people who are 65 and up or someone who has end-stage renal disease and or um, Medicare by way of disability and is younger than 65. And it applies to 65 million Americans. There are 65 million people in the US that have Medicare. And Medicare is a safety net because it covers 80% of their medical costs. Still, as as you mentioned, the 20% can break the bank, and that's an important planning exercise before one, one retires. Is it easier to plan the earlier you do it? Like investors will say, like, you get in early and you can essentially just sit on it because you've got in early enough that you'll benefit long term anyway. Is the Medicare system similar, whereby if you start saving for it and planning for it when you're younger, it will just get easier the more you do it just because you've been in the game longer. Mm-hmm. To some extent, there's four savings in this country because there's actually two parts to original Medicare. So original Medicare was established in the mid-1960s as part of the Great Society program by Lyndon B. Johnson. It was a remarkable achievement. There had been tens of millions of older aged Americans that were living in poverty and couldn't get any health care at all. They were dying on the sidewalk. And so what Medicare established was a safety net program for older aged Americans to get health care. And 
there's a forced saving aspect to it because a part of Medicare is deducted from one's payroll tax during their working years. There's another aspect to it, though, where you have to pay out of pocket for your or pardon, not out of pocket, but you have to pay a premium to the government for the cost of your insurance. So there's two parts. I think of it as a three legged stool, though. Three leg the three legs are hospital. That means you're inpatient. You have a wristband outpatient visits to the doctor. And then the final leg of the stool is drug coverage. Right. So it's almost like you would have those three elements that would work together in tandem and, and those sorts of things. I think that you've probably mentioned in the past that you're actually struggling to cope with the demand, almost that like Medicare is not fully covering people that, that really need it. Am I right in saying that? Like the system doesn't really handle the demand all that well. But by and large, the the Medicare system does an excellent job at delivering health care to older aged Americans. People, it is one of the most popular government programs, perhaps the most popular program in the United States. And many people don't even attribute it to the government, which is a, a good sign that it's doing its job. <laughs> so is, is that is that one of the things though, where it's in the background, it's part of the the method of it almost? Like if attributed to the government that means that well we're doing our job then because the idea is for it to be simple and straightforward enough that it doesn't impact your quality of life when you're younger like it works better when it's more convenient to to prepare for i i think you're hitting on an important point which is that e even though the system is designed to deliver a good health care uh, well it's it's a relatively good healthcare outcome for older aged Americans. That is, they can get the care that they need when they're sick. There's a, an aspect though, which is that it's a very expensive system to support and maintain. And so younger Americans are rightfully worried as to whether the system will deliver the same benefits that it has for their parents and grandparents. And so that's an it, open question yeah. that our society will need to address because the system is expensive. It is underfunded. Um, it's only funded through the late 2020s. And there needs to be planning involved in order to guarantee benefits for millennials, for example, because we will, as a generation, age into Medicare one day. Yes, it seems like the younger generation might look at it and think, do I invest in it? when I'm younger, when they can't quite see the benefit or see it working, given the cost of it, it's almost like, could I put that money elsewhere and be better off? I think the investment question is tricky because there's a, for someone who's in their 20s or 30s and they're working, a portion of your federal payroll tax is going towards Medicare. It's going towards the Medicare trust fund. The Medicare trust fund pun, funds Medicare part A, which is hospital coverage. It's the first leg of the stool means you're inpatient. It also funds a tiny portion of part B, which is outpatient. But people don't realize that there are these unfunded obligations for the remainder of one's outpatient obligations. That is visits right. to the doctor, durable medical equipment, which is becoming more and more common. 
I imagine that makes it difficult for people that have certain conditions. Maybe they're given prescription medication and the Medicare doesn't cover it. Because as you said, it's one of the last legs of the stool that I'm guessing you were about to say that it doesn't cover prescriptions. Am I right in saying that? You took the words out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was about to say <laughs> is that um, the prescription the prescription benefit was added to Medicare 40 years later. There was no drug coverage in the mid-1960s as part of original Medicare. It was only added 40 years later by bipartisan agreement. And the drug aspect um, is much, that is people's most common interaction with the healthcare system, going to the pharmacist and filling their prescriptions. It wasn't like that in the mid-1960s. So that's a totally new obligation the government has to fund. That is handled through private insurance companies mainly. People purchase a standalone prescription drug plan. So even though Part D, D is in drugs, is part of Medicare, in order to access that benefit, you need to purchase a private plan in the United States. I guess would be outside of the rest that you're paying into, meaning it'd be a separate plan that you would have to pay into after the Medicare payments come out of your income, you would then have to set aside another amount for this privatized system that you've needed to to cover your prescriptions. It makes me think, is that in part why they push drugs so heavily? Because then they don't have to pay for your medical like if it gets so bad that you end up being admitted to hospital it's covered conveniently but if they can prevent it or assist in it through drug use or prescription medication that sort of thing then it's actually less of a burden on what you're paying for through medicare so if you're with the older population and you can prevent going into hospital through prescriptions it's actually in their favor to do that Michael, it's a great point. That's right. If the the biggest, the largest cost to the Medicare program is hospital readmittance. So it's not the first admittance to the hospital. It's the second and third admittances that get really costly for Medicare to cover. So something in order to control costs that Medicare has been looking at closely is when does someone go back to the hospital for the same condition that they were already there for? That must make it very difficult then for people that need regular treatment, not necessarily curable or preventable with medication. Like some people have, whether it's checkups or regular operations, if it's something that they've got to maintain through operations and things like that. Some conditions are simply not maintainable or manageable with the, I guess you would say, easier or more convenient method. Do some people need the more intense methods that you can only get from a hospital? That's right. There, there, there has been an emphasis, as you mentioned, on prevention and for going for regular wellness checks, which are entirely covered by Medicare Part B, the outpatient component. But that's right. For an uncontrolled condition, sometimes people need inpatient hospital treatment. And that's where the costs really start to add up for the Medicare program. And one thing that 
there has been an expansion, especially since the pandemic started, in helping people access telehealth, which is a way, especially if they're in a rural part of the United States, that they can get affordable medical consultation with their doctor without going to the hospital if their condition spirals. So is this a big part of why there's so much medical debt? People are struggling financially because it's a bit more of a pay into system than, let's say, what we have over in the UK when we have the NHS, which apparently is covered in taxes, even though we're probably aware or hopefully aware at this point that the taxes don't really cover it as much as people think it does. Like you hear a lot of arguments over in the UK about, oh, well, we pay our taxes, therefore we're entitled to this, that, and the other thing. And then you show them how much an x-ray would cost, and then they think, mm, maybe not. Maybe we need to, to rethink the whole system in the UK because it doesn't cover the cost of what people use it for, which then I think oh, a lot of people in, in America would have a hard time covering the costs it's almost like a catch-22 isn't it of if you have the way the system's going now we're struggling financially to make it work in america let's say like they're struggling and we're struggling in the uk at the opposite end of the spectrum where taxes cover it where does it actually do well where what country has a good medical system that works and operates well and delivers the high standard of care without all of the struggle the financial struggle the unable to access it in some cases waiting months for treatment and in some cases you start to recover before you see anybody like where does actually do this right michael it's so hard to talk about cross-country healthcare comparisons we're not talking about the same population because U.S. older aged adults tend to be less healthy than the older aged adults in some of the European countries that you might be thinking of. Yes, there are health. There are countries that get great healthcare com- outcomes. Singapore would be an example of one. However, the Singaporean population isn't the same as the U.S. population by and large the U.S. population is less healthy. They're subject to more chronic conditions, for example, diabetes, namely. Right, so it's almost like they're doing the best they can with the people that they have. It's almost like if they're they're healthier, then well, that might be why the healthcare system does okay, because they look after themselves, which is why there's a big encouragement, isn't there, with things like being active, eating well, trying to keep yourself as healthy as you can so that you know there is less strain on the healthcare system and all of the i guess consequences of that yeah i I call this ees eating exercise and sleep eating exercise and sleep if you take care of, of those three things then i don't know if this is your experience michael but it will certainly help treat a lot of medical issues that might come up later on. And that's something that can be part of one savings program is to take care of their own health. So they're not as likely to need aggressive treatment later on for some type of chronic condition that would have otherwise been preventable. I can definitely agree with that. 
because although I mean aging has its own complications and then as of recording this I am not in my 60s or 70s so I can't speak to okay does your body start to really take the mick out of you when you're in your 70s and there's nothing you can do about it I think that there's probably a case to be made of at some point wear and tear just takes over and there's only so much you can do but I think that being healthier feeling stronger in yourself is a big thing as I've gotten older myself my ability to recover has become highest priority doesn't matter how much strength training you do doesn't matter how many marathons you run doesn't matter how much weight you can lift if as you get older it takes you a week to recover from your weight session because you've overdone it and your body's not what it used to be for that week you're going to struggle to do everyday tasks so then you want to ask yourself okay at what point am i actually not helping am i making things worse by trying to make things better so you then start to have this catch 22 of okay well am i better off pushing myself once a week twice a week doing extra things on recovery like when i was younger i used to strength train quite a bit and i realized i have to spend more time recovering the harder i pushed myself in the gym and i think so many people forget that because when you take drugs let's just take steroids for example if you try to enhance your performance through steroids drugs any other thing it impacts recovery a lot better than mm-hmm. your energy in the gym so you recover like an absolute machine that's why you can train twice a day as hard as possible it's not because of your intensity it's because you've recovered so well that you're able to go back in and do it again and recover the next day go back in and do it again and that's where you get the results from it's not in the gym it comes at it from the angle of well it doesn't hurt as much and i wake up feeling fine therefore I can go in and train harder every single time I'm training, which when you're 30 and 40 and don't take the supplements and don't look after yourself and don't sleep and don't focus on recovery, you simply can't do that. It's impossible if you don't recover. So I found over the years that recovery is more important than the training. What are some of the tools you use for recovery? Me personally, um i try and get enough sleep um since my degree and my focus on like the way the the body works and the way we can enhance systems of the body without really doing any serious damage um i've become a big believer in listening to my body a little bit more and if i feel stronger I work harder. So I do a couple of tests to test how my body is actually performing. Ah. So things like grip strength testing Mm. is a good test of how your nervous system is. So you test your grip strength. If you're a bit weaker that day, based on, you know, you just make a note of it. So what's your highest, what's your lowest, and you work within within that. So if you're you're at 90% of what your grip strength has been over the past three months, is this you a machine hard today. that measures your strength, your grip strength? Yeah, so it's just like a, a grip strength. I don't know the actual technical term of it. Grip strengthometer. Can't think of any other word for it. But basically, yeah. you you squeeze and it gives you a, a weight in some cases. 
in some cases it's like a um or another way of doing it is you could just like hang like a, a dead hang position sure and then you time yourself um which just takes forever like if you get good at it a test could take two minutes and that itself sounds like a workout to me and then yeah it is it is because you could get the same result just by buying a grip strength thermometer. you're going to have to google what the actual technical term is those that are listening because i can't remember what it is but testing your body to see how you're feeling that day mm-hmm. and going off that has proven mm-hmm. to be quite helpful yeah because you might feel great decent enough night's sleep but your grip strength is off don't yeah. go into the gym thinking you're feeling amazing because you've had a decent night's sleep. Yeah. When your nervous system's not ready for it. And then you end yeah, up absolutely. You end up suffering absolutely. for it for two or three days afterwards. Yeah. I mean, exercise is an important component, as is eating and sleeping. Also, don't want to fail to mention the importance of relationships. You mentioned your relationship to yourself in your own recovery when you train but our relationships with others is also important having a loved yeah. one that you can confide in having mm-hmm. a good social network are all things that contribute towards feeling healthy and being well yeah it's interesting how your response to stress can shift yes based on how you feel in the moment like i can be stressed out but feeling pretty good doesn't feel the same as if I'm stressed out and not feeling great. So it, it's like how you see the stress, like how you perceive it, how your body responds to it can also be a big thing. Like I've started, funnily enough, having semi-regular massages as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they, they turn around to me and say, look, how your body's responding to the stress that you're putting yourself under has actually got better over the past six months. So not only do you massage to alleviate the consequences of the stress physically, you're able to adjust how your body responds. So you don't get as stressed. You don't get as physically stressed. Yeah, I wish Medicare covered massage. Still able to function. Doesn't cover therapeutic massage, unfortunately. Yeah, it never, never gets any worse than what it was like when you first do it. Mm-hmm. that's been fascinating to me like the idea of you can start whatever training or therapy that you want mm-hmm. and even something like stretching fairly straightforward the first time you do it you hate it because you can't stretch you're like a brick you can't move your legs you can't move your arms you feel a bit like a failure when you first try and stretch but then after three months you're flexible yeah. you don't feel it as much it doesn't hurt as much yeah so many people stop at that point though that they you get to a point where they want a maintenance dose that where they can get away with like a minimum effective dose of whatever it is mm-hmm. and then they stop and i'm convinced it's because the convenience of doing it is the same as the convenience of not doing it that there's no consequence of stopping because you feel fine this is the consequence of keeping on going just to maintain. I, I think of it a little different. When someone stops a otherwise successful routine, to me, it's a symptom of boredom. They're, they're tired. 
the same thing each day. People love variety. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. And I, I also reckon sometimes it's that cost to benefit thing as well. And they probably tell themselves mm-hmm. that I'm bored, but if I don't mm-hmm. do it, it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes right, they don't because have the consequence of stopping. The flexibility that they were seeking yeah. in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Which then yeah. makes me think, is, is the healthcare going to be like that as well? Is the healthcare system going to be similar whereby they won't be as relied upon anymore if they actually help people get to a point where they don't need to be as much of a burden they then stop relying on the system because they don't necessarily need it which then makes me think okay is it all about money then like is it at a point where if people start paying into it because they feel like they no longer need it what happens then where they stop paying into it yeah that the people stop buying into the medicare idea because they look after themselves and take care of themselves and they do the things that you mentioned exercise nutrition and sleep and it does help to prevent a lot of the things that medicare would be there for what happens then well it's it's a choice to have medicare people can opt out but if they opt out then there's a late enrollment penalty when Ah. they decide to opt back in so it's a carrot and stick Carrot and stick. I, I sometimes I wish we had more of those. Carrot and sticks with things health related. Like if there were more consequences for not doing something that is beneficial, more people would probably do it. Yeah. And also, uh, people are used to paying hundreds of dollars a month for health insurance. Even for a healthy 30 some, it's still quite expensive to have health insurance. We're talking about six to eight hundred dollars a month and if you're married then it's in the thousands per month yeah i, Medicare, I imagine it's, it's so it's so ingrained in into society in a way you've got to look after your future you've got to plan and prepare and look after yourself or be able to look after yourself in your older years it's like a like an insurance policy yeah health. exactly Medicare, though, is a lot more affordable than private insurance coverage, by and large. People are surprised at how how reasonable the premiums are for Medicare. So just to take that example, for a private policy for a 35-year-old male in the U.S., typically would cost about six to $800, depending on the state they live, even more, potentially. Medicare, though... Let's say, Michael, you just come, came off your work-provided coverage. You're 70 years old. I've granted you American citizenship. And your premium would be $164.90 per month for Medicare. Right. Why is it so cheap in comparison to a private company? It's it's a great question. The, the reason... A, there's a lot of reasons for why it's less expensive. One of them is because there's there's generational cost shifting. So younger Americans are footing the bill for older aged Americans to have more affordable health insurance. Right, okay. A, a, an, another reason, though, is because Medicare negotiates 
and is cost con- and and has some level of cost control on what they pay to doctors for an X-ray, let's say, or for an office visit or for a specialist visit, depending on the specialist that you need. There's a fee schedule. Right. So, what? How does things like inflation factor in? Because if they're able to freeze somewhat the costs, well then inflation goes up for the hospital or the practice or even the the person paying medicare every month how does inflation get baked into the idea of it being affordable or does it increase as well like inflation affects the the cost as well yeah it's a great question so in the u.s the health uh, the healthcare industry is about 18 percent of the u.s economy and healthcare inflation has definitely been a driver of inflation overall uh, for the past 20 years. Costs have, have definitely increased for healthcare services. There has been inflation, undoubtedly. Um, since the pandemic, though, it, and overall inflation has really ticked up since the pandemic, especially here in, in, in the U.S., Healthcare inflation hasn't matched the general rate of inflation by by and large. And this is debated, but it seems like there have been better cost controls since the pandemic started on healthcare-wide inflation as opposed to general inflation. Whereas that it was the actual it was the reverse. Right. Previously. So the the inflation was higher than healthcare inflation. Am I right in saying that? Or the other way around? Since the pandemic? Yeah. So so this is a hotly debated topic. It appears the consensus is that the rate of healthcare inflation has slowed relative to general inflation. And that might be just because general inflation has gone up so much, right? It was almost at 9% here last year. That was actually the cost of living adjustment that Social Security gave to beneficiaries oh. For this upcoming year, 8.7% increase in their cost of living adjustment. Healthcare inflation has been estimated to be lower than 8.7%. Now, one reason people speculate is because some have deferred getting healthcare that they would otherwise have needed. For example, um, at the start of the pandemic, they didn't want to go to a hospital because they feared being exposed to COVID-19 if they needed to see a specialist. So, there, so it might be kicking of, the can down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was the impression that I'm getting as well, where people are less likely to use the healthcare system if the risk is there because right. of, uh, of COVID. So people are like, no, I don't need the operation because right. I don't want SARS or COVID or whatever the, whatever the pending <laughs> uh, viruses of the time. Um, yeah, it's, it's ex- exactly. That the 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 resources are, I mean, are they the same? Like, if because as a population, we're getting older. We we are healthier than what we were. Right. We're getting older. We're yes. lasting longer. In her quotes, how does that affect Medicare and the access to medical resources? It's it's it's. I'm so glad that you brought this up. The <laughs> life expectancy since Medicare's creation has increased quite a bit, but by, by over ten percent. So wow. the average 
life expectancy has definitely gone up in the aggregate since Medicare passed in the mid-1960s. And that has affected costs as well, because as someone ages, they need to access more care. And the costs are especially high in the last couple years of someone's life. That's really when they rack up a lot of healthcare costs in the med- in under Medicare. That's where it becomes very expensive to provide healthcare to someone, depending on the course of treatment that they and their family choose. So is it a bit strange that, because you mentioned before that the, the younger generation are in a way paying for the older generation to have access to it and to maintain the, the cost. So it's a way of like flattening the curve, so to speak, when it comes to costs and expenses and, and those kinds of things. How do you see it playing out then if we continue to get older? Like if we think, okay, we add another 10% onto this, what happens then? Like, do you get people into jobs earlier and get them signed up for Medicare earlier to keep the cost the same? But then the even younger generation then start paying for the even older generation to so you've got these like opposite ends of the spectrum. Whereas is there another way? Is there a better way? Because I want people to live longer and healthier lives. It would be great if people could have like a longer health span, healthier for longer. Sure, sure. Yeah, a health span would certainly be one way of attacking the problem. Um, so, Michael, let, let's unpack your question, because I, I think you bring up a really good point, which is that if there are um, if we're not entirely footing the bill for the Medicare program, then the can is getting kicked down the road in terms of who will bear the costs, right? Those unfunded obligations will lead to higher taxes ultimately for the generation that doesn't yet have Medicare. They will have to bear the costs. Now, getting one proposal has been to actually push Medicare from 65 to 67. And an example of a country that just used this to help smooth its obligations for its older age population would be France in how Macron has proposed to shift the age for pensioners, right? He he has proposed, it, it was um, in the early 60s and he proposed moving it to the mid 60s. Very unpopular. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. Because a lot of French people rightfully planned to retire in the early 60s. They contributed to the system and now they feel like the goalposts are being shifted. So that yeah. would be quite tricky. Another thing we could do is raise taxes to make sure that the program is better funded. That would also be highly unpopular, especially in the United States. Yeah. And our politicians would have a lot of difficulty agreeing on who should bear the cost. The other, uh, and there are many, many proposals. So this is this is just, I've just mentioned two, but the other would be cutting benefits, cutting what Medicare covers or downshifting the amount that it would cover. That would also be quite unpopular for a number of reasons and less desirable in terms of health outcomes, probably. 
So there, there, there's, there's no silver bullet and there's no good answer here. It sounds like at some point the system's just not going to be, it's like it's collapsing under its own weight almost. And it's making me think, is there a better option? Obviously, a lot of companies need to make a profit. They need to be able to function. Governments is the same way. Hospitals the same way. There's so many moving parts that all have to work together and coexist and find a way to, to get along essentially and then so you just hit the nail on the head and and that approach the private sector based approach is one that the government has been experimenting with here in the u.s since 1997 they created uh, so the three legs of the medicare stool hospital medical drug coverage you can keep original medicare if you like alternatively you can choose a replacement for original medicare administered through a private insurance company. It's called Medicare Advantage here. And over 50% of Americans have actually opted for this privately administered plan. Now, what's the rub? Well, even though it can provide more additional benefits, it's managed care. So that is, there's a gatekeeper under most of these plans. And the gatekeeper, you, you, there's prior authorization for whether you get the care or not. Of course, there's an appeal process too. So it, it's not as if the plan gets to tell you whether you can get a procedure. I mean, if, if you do get a denial, for example, you can appeal the denial, but that's not how original Medicare works. So essentially, there's a, a private option that was designed to help control costs. Has it helped control costs? It's it's really hard to do an apples to apples comparison here between original Medicare and Medicare Advantage and how well it might help in terms of cost control. But the program, the idea of Medicare Advantage was designed to help control costs overall. So there needs to be more study as to whether it actually does or doesn't. Is there anything that you've noticed actually work and actually help cut costs? I mean, it must be difficult in the UK to really track this kind of thing, but like, is a healthier lifestyle able to cut costs? Is thinking long-term able to cut costs? Like, is there anything that you've seen in your years of studying this and working with people with this that's actually worked and helped? maybe if you're healthier there's less costs when you're older i don't know if that's yeah the case. I, I have actually michael the the number one way i've seen someone control costs and this this was mind-blowing to me is uh someone i worked with three years ago hadn't seen the doctor in 15 years so encourage them to make a doctor's appointment they went to the doctor two years ago they had chronic conditions and it required very, very expensive course of treatment over wow. the year. So now what do they do different? Each year at the start of the year, they go for a wellness check. It has okay. substantially lowered their out-of-pocket medical costs just as a result of having a, a, a check-in with their doctor because they realized that they weren't in as great a shape as they thought they were. So then they started making lifestyle changes 
because they want to live as long as they possibly can. And so their costs went from tens of thousands of dollars two years ago to only a couple of thousand dollars for this past year. And celebrating wins wow. like that is really what makes me think it is possible to control costs overall. It must be a bit um, a crazy thing for them to go through. It's kind of like if you've been diagnosed with something that then can cause the um, the wake up call. But then, as you said, you've got people that like if you're if you're going in for a test, generally speaking, you prepare for said test. If mm-hmm. you've not been to see the doctor in decade in over a decade. Mm-hmm. You won't have needed. It's almost like, I mean, over here in the UK, like things like seeing your dentist or seeing an optician for your eyesight, that's a voluntary thing. Yeah, in, it in, is here in, too. In a lot of ways. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't know if you had any issues with your teeth or your eyes if you don't experience any problems. So unless you start walking into lamppost, I mean, you're not going to go and see the opticians. Um, right. Because you can function. Same right. thing with like your your teeth, unless you bite into a nut and you've got a tooth sticking in it, you, you're not yeah. gonna. Oh, maybe I should go and see the dentist. So I think a lot yeah. of people have these hidden issues or concerns that because it doesn't. Yeah, you know, Michael. Face in a way, you're wh- while you're speaking, anything. I can't help but think of a fellow Brit, Rory Sutherland. Have you checked ah, his work? I haven't. No, but. Uh, he worked in advertising, and now I would really say he's a psychologist. And he talks about satisficing. So I completely agree, right? Unless you have a toothache, it's unlikely that you would go to the dentist unless you've built a routine of getting regular cleanings. Yeah, it's it, it's a weird... I think it's a human condition, in a way. But I think... Some people need, similar to what we said before, that people need to do things to prevent the thing from happening. It's almost like you never experience any symptoms. Like if you want to live pain-free, then you've got to do things when you're pain-free to prevent the pain from, don't wait for the pain before you do anything. Like, okay, I'm going to experience this in the future. If I start now, I may never experience it. I may never get i don't know a slip disc or whatever if i start doing yoga when i'm young and i just don't stop just have this element yeah. of this is something i do all the time no matter what because i know for a fact when i get older my body is going to start hating me and i'm going to want to do something about it now instead of waiting for it to get any worse or waiting for the back pain before i do anything very very difficult to get in that type of mindset because you have to think about what would it what will it look like in 10 years if i don't keep investing in myself you you think yeah. well it'll look about what it does today i'll feel about the same way that i do when i'm not working out today but 10 yeah, years so- of entropy is a lot it is and then you've got like the um inertia of steering the ship as well like if you're trying to steer the ship towards health, how long do I have to keep doing this before I start to feel healthier? Yeah. I've got to and wait five years before I start to feel any benefit. I've got five years of doing something over and over and over and mind-numbingly over again before I start to feel like I'm benefiting. And sometimes the benefit, I don't know if you've experienced this, but sometimes the benefit is just 
being the same as you were when mm-hmm. you were younger. You don't mm-hmm. get any better. Mm-hmm. You just don't That's get right. any worse. So you don't That's necessarily right. get any benefit. You just don't experience any negative from not doing it. So it's not, right. you're not really benefiting a lot of the time. You're just not having the pain, the suffering, the conditions, the illnesses, the injuries that people like you would experience without doing those things. So it's like more of a neglect issue than a doing it issue. Yeah. And, you know, even when friends describe various injuries that they have or how much their lower back is hurting them, you can't compare the pain of your own headache to someone else's headache. No, no, no. Right. So so it's very hard to conceptualize what it would look like to experience that degree of pain in 10 yeah. years. And it's easier to think, well, I'll just feel about the same way I do now. I'll just be 10 years older. Yeah, it's so it's so hard and confusing. And I think this is, I guess, it's like a a real reason why we have the problem that we have. It's what not is the problem in the UK? Well, I mean, it's it's like the the idea that you don't do anything about the thing until it hurts, until it affects mm. you. Otherwise, you don't do anything. I don't think that's just a UK thing. I think that's like a an everywhere thing. Well, then I guess in the US, because you have to pay for a fair percentage of mm-hmm. what you're getting medical mm-hmm. wise, mm-hmm. some people yeah. put it off because of the costs. Where yeah. in the UK, we may not necessarily have that unless we decide to go private. So if we use the NHS, not everyone yeah. does, if we use the NHS, we can get it fixed like when it's small like before right. it gets so big because you may not have any cost involved financially of doing it paying private i guess you just get the treatment quicker in a way which then would cause this catch 22 isn't it of if i wait until it hurts i've then got to wait six months potentially how bad is it going to be <laughs> before yeah. i before I actually get this thing seen to and this thing treated or find out what it is in some cases. Whereas in America, you can, in a way, like pay to have it seen to when it starts to creep up if you have the finances where some people don't, especially in the older generation, maybe they retired and they don't necessarily work full time or have the funds to be able to pay, I don't know, thousands for an x-ray or a CT or whatever the case is. And it's like, well, what do I do now? It's like no matter which way you look at it, unless you have the money, you're going to be waiting. So you may as well add yourself to whatever list you, that you're suspicious of because it might take a while. Before yeah, Michael, I haven't experienced the UK healthcare system, but that's not quite how it works in, in the US. That there's there wouldn't be um a, a, a cue to see your doctor if you're on Medicare. And you would have a pr- pretty what what people appreciate about Medicare is that you know the government is going to pick up its 80% share. And so then all that you have to reckon with is the 20%. And there are two types of additional coverage here that you can choose to cover the 20%. I write about them in, in my book if someone is curious. But it's it's pretty straightforward as to how Medicare will cover 
it's much less straightforward for someone who's on an employer plan and less than age 65 here. Right. So there's a way of like the, the fact that it's part contributed is how the, the system is sped up, I guess. I, I suppose in in some ways, does it depend on how big of an emergency it is? Like if it's an emergency, then you get in on the day because it's a priority versus something that the routine checkup or, or whatever the case may be, you're then not kicked down the road, but you have to wait a bit longer depending on what the symptoms are or, or what the situation is. I, th- I think research shows that one area in which the U.S. healthcare system is fairly strong uh, when doing a cross-country comparison is on providing critical care. So, so when someone really needs to go to the hospital, then there typically is a, a pretty good uh, we have a they have a, a, a way to access the system without waiting too long in order to get care that they need so where would like the older generations tend to struggle then like in what way is the system not necessarily built for the kinds of people that may actually need it more Th- this would really depend on the type of person that we're talking about for example if we're talking about someone who needs home health care, there is an area in which Medicare could do a lot better. It provides very little benefit for someone who needs treatment at home. And we are seeing older aged Americans wanting to stay at home rather than go to some type of skilled nursing facility. They enjoy the comforts of being in their own house rather than some austere environment that reminds them of a hospital so here the 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 system could actually do a lot better job at controlling its own costs if we had a way for them to access the medical system at home and right now it doesn't do a great job at providing home health care and it's difficult to get covered that would seem like if it was a popular thing so let's say the majority of people of a certain age would rather have access at home because they want to be at home, comfortable environment, as opposed to a hospital. Why don't they offer something like that or have a a system in place for people that want that? Or is there just not enough of a demand for something like that? Oh, I, I would say that there's significant demand. And in fact, some Medicare Advantage programs, some, Michael, here, I I think this might help explain part of the difference between the U.S. system and the U.K. system. So in, in, in the U.S. system, the type of Medicare Advantage plan that you can choose varies based on where you live. It varies based on the state, based on the zip code, based on the county. So- there's hundreds of health insurance companies offering thousands of plans nationwide. So we're talking about a program that's managed at the federal level, Medicare. But then in terms of the specific plan that you choose, if you go the Medicare Advantage route, it's going to vary based on whether you live in Arizona, California, New York, or Florida. Now, some plans, specifically uh, ones that come to mind would be in Florida, 
do provision home health care services. But I'm here in Arizona, and there are very few plans that would provision that same type of coverage that would be available to someone in Florida. And so this is where it gets to be such a tricky question. Because at the federal level, Medicare provides very little support for home health care services. In fact, there's a Goldilocks test, essentially. Can't be too sick, can't be too healthy in order to qualify. But then if you replace original Medicare with a Medicare Advantage plan, it is possible that it might offer more home health care services. But it would only be if you live in a certain area and have access to a certain plan that would provision it. So if you live in California and you want home health care, move to Florida is kind of the way it's going. Like People are going to move house depending on what medical plan that they would like, which would then you research the state, you research the <laughs> zip code and you think, hmm, I can get health care at home here. I'm going to uh, move, I think, is the long term plan. Uh, potentially down the road. I know I, I haven't acro come across that in more than a handful, <laughs> only few, fewer than I can count on one hand are coming to mind with right. people who have moved <laughs> states in order to access a different type of healthcare benefit. But So why don't they standardize? Is it because it, there's 50 states, every leader has their own policy procedure around what they think the right healthcare should be like? Is it almost too fractionalized, do you think? So, so Medicare is standardized at the federal level. Medicare right. covers 80% of someone's medical costs. However, to cover the other 20%, there's two options. On one hand, there's a standard program that has also been... Can you... Um, now, to cover the other 20%, there are two options. On one hand, you can get a supplement. It's also called Medigap to cover the other 20%. These Medigap options are standardized under federal law, full stop. You can access the same care in Florida, California, New York. On the other hand is Medicare Advantage, which we've been talking a lot about. Medicare Advantage is going to vary based on where you live. In a state like Alaska, for example, it's not even an option. But in other states, there's a ton of competition. If we look at Illinois, for example, in, in the county that includes Chicago, there are almost 60 different plan options to choose from with Medicare Advantage. Wow. What's going to vary, though, is how it covers your doctor, whether your doctor is covered at all. They must be in network. Two, how it covers your prescriptions. And then finally, your priorities. If you want to do a lot of, if you want to snowbird and live in Florida in, in the winter, then your Medicare Advantage plan is that the Medicare Advantage plan you chose based on living in Chicago isn't going to work very well in Florida. Is the fact that it's quite confusing part of where the problem is with the system? Like, do you think it's just too varied, do you think? Or where do you see the actual problems with this? Is it just the weight of the demand? Is it the increase in cost? Is it people aren't on the right plans for them? Like how big is the issue? Because as you can probably guess, those that are listening and yourself as well, Ari, 
it's quite confusing. Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and I feel like there'd be a lot of people that are actually on plans that are not the best fit, which would then yeah. cause issues yeah. further down the line. Unfortunately, most people aren't on the right plan, as noted. The, the What's fascinating, Michael, is that there's a time each year when people can shop their coverage and find a different plan. It's called the annual enrollment period here in the States. And it's in the fall. It's in the fall every year. By and large, most people don't shop their plans. They don't. They just stay on the plan that they were on. And it's a real loss, which is why my co-founders and I started a company. The company's name is Chapter. And what we allow someone to do is to shop all their Medicare options nationwide. So is this why you started it? Because you realize just how complicated it is and how hard it is to make sure that... Because I picture the healthcare system having an easier time if it was more tailored, you wouldn't have to put costs in places that they were not needed or not used by the individual, especially if you're paying like 20% or more and the government's then paying 80% all into a system that not everyone's using or the person mm-hmm. that's paying for it isn't using. I, I feel like if 100% of it was going to where the person actually used it, and warranted mm-hmm. it, they might not need as much investment because they might not be needing as much. You you can't negotiate how much you pay for, for Medicare. It's a standard amount, and 85% of Americans pay about 165 bucks per month for Medicare. Now, in terms of accessing the benefit of their Medicare, though, you're you're, you're absolutely right because people should be scheduling, for example, this is the time of year to be getting a wellness check, which is very similar to a, a physical here in the States. This is this is the time to be doing it and to be accessing their, their, their benefits so that they can protect their health span and prevent chronic conditions or treat it. Yeah, I'm starting to get the picture that a lot of it is a system that people don't necessarily use all of don't necessarily take advantage of Mm -hmm. and yet the money just kind of keeps rolling in whether they use it or not because they pay monthly and then they contribute to the services that they use Mm -hmm. is there an element of they want to keep it this way is that the impression that you get like they wanted to be this way because whatever it is it's like gym memberships rely on members that pay and don't use the gym because it's the mm. only way they could operate and sure. they're hoping that people don't necessarily stick to their regimens but then just stop going for right. whatever reason. Is that the impression that you get from the healthcare system whereby, okay, well, if people pay monthly and they have a checkup every one to two years and maybe they need something from us every four to six months and that's it, it's like, well, it's does give you that impression in a way i'm probably wrong Mm. but Mm. i kind of feel like it's a system that's feeding itself a little bit and then it's like okay it's a bit like um like michael it's almost like home insurance or car insurance where like people just keep paying into it 
and they're kind of hoping that they just ignore the payments almost. Yeah. So the point that you're making is people only need it once they're broken, once once they really need some type of intervention. So for example, to analogize it to car insurance, it would be only when you get in an accident. That yeah. doesn't match my experience so so much. Here at, at Chapter, most of our members actually see the doctor regularly and, and get quite a bit out of their Medicare. Now, are there some people who don't have a visit for a couple years? Of course. But that's very different from car or house insurance. Yeah, I mean, I get the impression that it might need to be a priority for people before they then start to do that. So do you have any examples of people that, let's say, they don't have health conditions, there's no, like, pressing need for them to do it, mm -hmm. and yet they do it from a maintenance perspective? You know, where, like, I've got health conditions, so I see someone every year, I have multiple checkups every year, as a maintenance dose for me. Yeah. But I also yeah. need to. Does anyone do that that doesn't need to? And they go in and it's a bit like, when I go in and I have checkups for my teeth, let's say, Ari, I go in and they go, yeah, everything's fine. See you next year. Mm -hmm. Does anyone do that for like healthcare where they go in, you have a physical and it's like, see you next year, but you're fine. Like, there's no issues, but you'd be appreciate the fact that you're coming in and, and keeping yourself you know, aware of what's going on. I, I would say that describes many of our members. Um, as now, w women are, 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 are women tend to be more conscientious than men and better at the type right. of follow-ups yeah. in going and making sure that they have a primary care doctor and that they see their OBGYN, for example, and that they get regular screenings for breast cancer, for example, and and. Still, it's it's important too that people regularly have colonoscopies. There are just scheduled preventative um, scans that need to happen in order to maintain one's health. So, what is the kind of person then that is? Because we're getting to a point in the conversation now where it's like, okay, most of people that you tend to see are on the preventative side of things, and yet a lot of the concerns are. The system's clapping under its own weight. It's struggling financially to cope with every, all of it. And not just like the general thing, like the whole system will likely struggle if things aren't changed and if things aren't improved on. What kind of situation could you paint for people where it's like, yeah, but they don't use it. They're not on the right plan. They're not using the services that they have access mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. causing further issues down the line. Yeah, the, the main issues we see here is that someone chooses a plan that doesn't have their doctor included. That's a major issue when the doctor that you have a trusted relationship with isn't covered by the plan that you selected. And right. yeah. uh, unfortunately, a lot of advisors in the States are captive to one health insurance company or a handful of health insurance companies. And they aren't searching across all the plans that someone's doctor might accept or all the plans that would offer the most benefits for that person. We've named several throughout this podcast, including home health care, gym membership. Um, th these plans can even include 
uh, a flexible spending card that counts towards dentistry, for example. And, and so it's important for someone to make sure that they're getting their three met. The three P's are your providers, make sure your doctors are in network, your prescriptions, make sure they're af covered affordably. And then finally, your priorities, what's important to you. So one of the biggest issues that we're actually facing is the fact that they're not choosing the, I guess the foundational plan. things. Yeah, they're not choosing yeah. the right plan. They're not choosing something that they can access conveniently. Like the doctor's someone that you can just go and see. And the idea yeah, of that convenience not being is a huge would make it hard, would make it difficult to just get any advice at all if it's not covered in any way. Convenience is a huge factor. Some some of our members have trouble making it to the doctor. There are plans that include a transportation benefit. So if you don't have a way of getting to your doctor's office, the plan provides for a benefit where they'll come and pick you up and then take you home. So is this affordable? So like if we divert funds from one aspect of a plan to the more effective aspects of the plan the things that the individual actually values and actually would benefit a lot from do you see costs being the same being more being less being more affordable by shifting the plan from one element that they never use to another element which they would use all the time mm -hmm. how do you see that changing the cost to the consumer or the the patient let's say ah uh, okay so Case by case, absolutely. Someone should be maximizing their plan based on what they'll actually use and how they'll use the plan, which is an individual discussion based on the healthcare outcomes that they want to achieve and what's important to them and also what they're willing to commit to, right? Now, in the aggregate, though, how these cost savings add up, that's a much fuzzier picture but it seems like it should have some effect in the aggregate. Because I, I imagine like if doctors included, but then the transportation element, which you mentioned, may yeah, not it cuts be benefits covered. elsewhere, right? Yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that what you're saying? It's, it's what I'm picturing, but then if you're paying for 20 or 30% of, of that, they're more likely to do it if they're being paid for it in a way. If, if, if that makes any sense, like if it's like a bonus or an add-on to your policy, that may increase the premium for you in a way. So are, are you talking about doctors getting compensated for achieving better health outcomes for their patients? Well, and like I, I, measuring I was thinking how likely... like if, let's say if uh, someone doesn't need prescriptions, but they want the doctor to pick them up because they're having a hard time getting to the doctor mm -hmm. if there's a plan which has that shift where mm -hmm. they don't need to pay for prescriptions because they don't really need it well then they have the extra accommodation that they would likely need to to see the doctor does mm -hmm. that shift the plan does that add any premium for them because it uh I guess, a premium on the service or an additional thing that they would have to do to accommodate the, the individual? I don't think that there would be any special incentive to encourage that type of compliance. And this might be too on the nose, 
Michael, but what we find here at Chapter is that our clients really appreciate mail order prescriptions. So when it just shows up at your doorstep, it saves you a trip to the pharmacy. And then you have a three-month supply of the medication that you needed. And that that actually helps with compliance. Now, of course, with them. Um, with making sure that someone continues to take their medication is that they have a way where they get a new shipment before they run out of the old one. Yeah, it's similar in in the UK. As far as I'm aware, unless you order it, particularly for three months, you typically get it monthly, which for some people, if they can't get to the pharmacy every three months, trying to get to the pharmacy every month is probably going to be three times as hard just using that yeah. as an example yeah that's right that's right and and it's it's quite e we help people every day with sending their doctor scripts to the pharmacy mail order now of course we're talking about private insurance here so it's important that the doctor's office send the script to the Part D, Part D is in drugs, insurance carrier, so that they have the script on file and can then send the prescriptions to the member's doorstep. Have you ever sat down and had like a thought experiment of how you would change or improve the the medical system, Medicare for all the generations. Have you ever had that thought process yourself? Like sort of go, okay, I, I run chapter, we do really well. But mm -hmm. if the Medicare system was a bit different, if it was better in this way or that way, maybe mm -hmm. we make this change over here. Does mm -hmm. it improve things? Have you ever had that thought experiment? Oh my gosh. Yeah, yes, of course. <laughs> there, there, there's so many changes I would make if, 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 I were in charge of the system, but I'm not. And what we can do is instead realize the strengths and weaknesses of where the system is at presently and then help our members max maximize them. And I think the main way is that the system is opaque. It's patchwork. And of course, there are hundreds of health insurance companies offering thousands of plans. So as a starting point, you just need to have a tool that compares all of these different plan options. And that's something we've managed to accomplish over the past several years. Well, I would really like the people that are listening that are in the US that want access to the plans, be able to shop, compare, maybe even adjust things if you have that level of customizability of the plans to be able to do that. So here's your chance, Ari, to share about Chapter, share about the work that you're doing. How can people reach out to you? And are you on social media as well? So there's your chance to get people to connect with you as well. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure to join you. Please check us out at askchapter.org. You can also send me an email at ari, A-R-I, at askchapter.org. And of course, you can read my book. It's it's on Amazon. The name is It's Not That Complicated. And if you can't afford it, just send me an email and I'll send it to you. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Ari, thanks so much for joining me. 
and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you.